So today's Bible reading is Titus chapter 2, verses 1 to 15. You, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ who gave himself up for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These, then, are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. Good morning again, everyone. Um, You might remember, if you were here like a a while ago, a few months ago maybe, um, I told you I used to teach drums and guitar in primary schools. Um, and I remember, I remember having one student in particular. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna call him Buddy this morning. All right, good old Buddy. Buddy was awesome, right? Buddy was great. He was hilarious, and we always had a laugh together in our lessons. But Buddy did this thing that made it harder and harder to trust what he said. Okay, for most of his lessons, I think this happened. Uh, when he when he'd come in and sit down, we'd say our g'days for the morning. Say how are you going. Uh, and then I'd ask him the question, you know, did you do your homework since last lesson? Did, did you practice the guitar at home and, and play what we'd been going through? And he'd look at me and he'd nod his head and he'd say, yes. Uh, I'd say, okay, so last week we learned how to play the G chord, buddy. And now if, if you've seen that episode of Friends where uh, Phoebe's teaching Joey how to play guitar, and she says, the bear claw, that chord, that's the G chord, the bear claw right there. So I'd say, this is the chord that we learned, the G chord. Can, can you remember how to play that? And he'd look at me and he'd nod his head. He'd say, Yes. I'd say, great, buddy, awesome. Can you show me? And he'd say, yes. I'd say, all right, go for it. But then he'd look at me. He'd look down at his guitar. And then he'd look at me again. Look at his guitar. And he'd just go, yeah, wicked. And I'd go, buddy, you, you didn't do your homework, did you? And he'd go, no, no, I didn't. You see, buddy was a, was a student who often said he knew something. But in his actions, it became pretty apparent that this wasn't the case. I'm not going to tell you about the time that the school concert was coming up and Buddy told me that he definitely knew how to play Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. It's a bit, it's, it's too painful, that memory. We can't go into it right now, okay? <laughs> but in Titus, I can't help but think of my, uh, of my lessons with Buddy. Why? 
Because as we read through Titus, we read that there were many people who said that they knew something. They claimed to know God, is what they said. But we read in Titus 1 verse 16 last week about the thing that showed this to be false. We read that they claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. Now, I think my illustration about buddy only goes so far. I'm going to leave the word detestable out of homework and that kind of thing for now. But in Titus chapter 2, in that opening verse, Paul writes to Titus, You, however... Meaning, Titus, contrary to those false teachers who say that they know God but are actually denying him in their actions, uh, you, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. In other words, teach people to live out in their lives the truth of what they believe. Teach people to live out in their lives the truth of what they believe, that they may be people who say they know God and by their actions show this. If you've got an outline in front of you, you'll see three points there. Firstly, what we know. Secondly, what we know works out in what we do, or what we believe works out in what we do. And thirdly, living out what we believe together. So point one, what we know. Uh, Now, there's every chance that Buddy's not being able to play the guitar can actually be attributed to the faults of his teacher, being me. Uh, Because that's the nature in the relationship between a teacher and a student, isn't it? If there are gaps in the teacher's knowledge anywhere, that means gaps in what a student is learning from their teacher. They will reflect the good things and the bad things in their teacher the more time that they spend with them. This is why Paul points us to the perfect teacher. That's what verses 11 to 15 help us see this morning. There is a lot in this chapter to cover and we won't have time to be able to dig into all of it. So we'll be spending most of our time in those first 10 verses. But in order to understand how verses 1 to 10 can come to pass, we need to understand the why of those verses and the motivation for the way people are being encouraged to live. And this motivation comes from the one who is most appropriately positioned to teach us, from God himself. We read in verse 11 to 12, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people, It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. See, there are two ideas that are brought together here in these verses. The first is that the grace of God saves and the second is that the grace of God teaches. These ideas being impossible to separate from one another and these ideas finding their union in Jesus. The first idea here is that we are totally dependent on God, totally dependent on God to save us, to save us from the penalty of our rejection of him and his judgment on us because of it, his right judgment on us because of it. The the grace of God has been revealed, has appeared in God the Son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross to take this penalty onto his own shoulders to save us. A salvation that becomes ours when we put our trust in Jesus as the only one who can do this. We are totally dependent on him and we bring nothing to the table. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus. Secondly, for those who trust in and follow Jesus, grace teaches. Just as we depend on the grace of God in Jesus to save us, we depend on the grace of God in Jesus to teach us as well. See, we can't live rightly before God without Jesus. 
We read that God's grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. In other words, to say no to the way of life that cut us off from God in the first place. A life of rejection of God. We read in verse 14 this morning that we've been transformed into people who've been purified. Transformed into people who belong to Jesus himself. A people who are eager to do good. So how are we to live and learn about what this looks like? Well, by looking to the one who saved us and who made us new. Now, if you were dangling from a cliff by the very tips of your fingers and someone pulled you up and saved you from what was surely awaiting you when you let go, why would you go back and keep playing by the edge of the cliff? We have been saved by Jesus. We've been transformed into a new people. Chapter 3 teaches us that God dwells in us by the Holy Spirit, transforming us. God himself is at work in our hearts, helping us to live for him. If we know what it is that God has saved us from, if we know the incredible lengths that he has gone to to save us, why would we turn to our old way of life again, of rejection of him? The grace of God has been revealed to us fully in Jesus, who teaches us to say no to living against God, as we're reminded afresh of who he is, what he's done for us, and our desperate need for him. The motivation for the way we are to live then is in response to the amazing grace of God as he has shown us in his son Jesus, through whom we have salvation through faith. And in verses 1 to 10 this morning, we read that faith in Jesus, well, it works itself out in godly living as we respond to the grace of God together. In other words, what we believe, it works out in what we do. That's point two this morning. Titus is instructed to teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. In other words, Titus is to teach people to live lives that are in line with the gospel of grace that we see in verses 11 to 15. Titus is to teach those who believe in Jesus to live like it. A life lived in response to God's grace as we follow him. And Paul is really addressing the household of the Christians in Crete in verses 1 to 10. A place whose culture, whose society, pulled completely against the gospel and completely against God. Uh, The first time I ever went surfing was down at Middleton Point. If you think really hard, you might be able to figure out which friend I was with when I was there. Uh, But it was a bit of a stormy morning and the swell was pretty big, at least to my my first time surfing eyes. And we ran into the water, we started paddling out, and I swear I looked down at my board for about two seconds and then suddenly I couldn't see my friend anymore. See, he was much more fit than I was. And as we paddled out, he had pulled far ahead and I had fallen far behind. And as I had fallen behind, I started being dragged toward the rocks at Middleton Point behind us, and I was just paddling frantically, trying to figure out how to get out of that situation. And for the Christians in Crete, I wonder if it would have felt the same way, living in a culture, in a society that was so obviously pulling against God and trying to go the other way. How easy it would have been to be dragged by the push and pull of the culture around them and to be swept against the rocks. And maybe you're feeling that right now in Adelaide. Maybe you're feeling that right now in a work context or a friendship circle. In verses 1 to 10 this morning, this is how Paul tells Titus to instruct the Christians in Crete to live in the push and pull of the culture of the day that was pulling away from God and onto the rocks. 
And Paul really addresses five different household members of which we all belong. And I wonder if you can see the common theme appearing in these instructions about how to live. It's a common thing that comes up. Self-control. Now, I often think the test of self-control, of course, is what happens when you open up that block of chocolate. Uh, Does one row disappear or does the whole block disappear? That's self-control. But in Crete, self-control is not the way the culture was described in Titus. Actually, you describe the culture in completely the opposite way. It was a culture that was driven by any and every desire. They were described as liars, as as animals, and as gluttons in chapter 1. But Paul wants the Christians in Crete not to live this way. Why? Because by the grace of God, they have been saved from their rejection of God and the penalty for that. By the grace of God, they have been transformed into a brand new people when they put their trust in Jesus. And they're called to live as new people. People whose desires are not governed by the world around them and the push and pull of their culture, but by desire of following Jesus knowing what it is that he's done for us and how desperately we need him. So Paul speaks firstly to the older men and women in the church and then to the younger women and men in the church and finally he speaks to slaves. Now older men and women here I think has quite a broad age range in mind. So hear that, has a very broad age range in mind. And these are those who would have ranged from the ages of maybe the mid-40s and beyonds. See, these are people who've done more of life and who would have been looked to naturally for leadership and for guidance by those who were younger than them. When you look at the, at the list of characteristics for those older men and women and how they were called to live their lives, well, we can see that the driving desire for these men and women, for us here, isn't meant to be the driving desire of the culture that we live in. A culture in Crete that may have said, Work towards having no responsibility. Just live life for you. You're only here for a short time. What are you waiting for? Instead, we're called to live lives in response to the grace of God and what he desires. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, men who hold fast to their faith in Jesus, who love God and those around them, and who persevere in this to the very end, beyond the workforce, into retirement. This is what their lives were to be devoted to replicating, and it's the same for us too. Likewise, for the older women who were also called to be self-controlled. Paul adds in the extra directive, use your words well. Not for evil, not for slander, not for gossip, but to teach. To teach the younger women what it looks like to live in a way that is pleasing to God and isn't pushed and pulled by the culture around them. For those older men and women here, these verses invite you to reflect on your own lives and on your walk with Jesus. As you have followed Jesus, how has your life been changed by the gospel? Where do you and have you struggled with self-control and temptation and struggling to, to follow Jesus? How have you seen the culture around you push and pull against God? In what areas do you know that young men and young women struggle with self-control because you have struggled and stumbled in these areas yourself? If you reflect on your life and you can see how the grace of God has changed and shaped you more into the image of Jesus and less into the image of the world around you, teach this to those who are younger than you. 
warn them of the things in this world and in the culture around us that pulls against God and not toward him. You have a really important role in this church to pursue godliness in your own life and by so doing to help those younger than you do so as well. To help those younger than you think through and learn what a life lived in response to the grace of God looks like. And for younger men and women, we should seek to listen to their wisdom. Older women are called to teach younger women in verse 4 there. Now these next few verses, they're the kind of verses that can really grate against the nerves, I think. There's that phrase, be busy at home and be subject to her husband. These phrases have been used in really abusive and very inappropriate ways. So it's important for us to understand what's going on here. See, the home in Crete, it was the centre of work for the entire family. I've heard it described as the economic centre of the household. So here young women are not being told to keep the kitchen clean and tidy for the master of the house, as I think this can often be really unhelpfully used to say. Rather, if the home in Crete was the economic centre of the home, then Paul is saying to older women, teach younger women, both married and unmarried, to be faithful in their household and in their work in the way that they follow and serve Jesus and love those around them. If they are married women, help teach them about what it looks like to work alongside their husbands to serve Jesus at home and work. If they are not married, teach them what it looks like along with the married women to live self-controlled lives amidst a world that offers many temptations to turn from Jesus. Teach them about things that you know could be really hard for them and could steer them away from Jesus. Teach them to be kind to those around them, to reflect the love of Jesus in their lives for those around them and to serve him. Now for those young women involved in different professions, I think Paul is saying, awesome, great. Now, how can your work there help you care for and love your household, whatever that looks like right now? How can it cause you to to not uh, neglect to love your husband and your children in the busyness of life? What is your driving desire as you go about life? Is it to seek to serve and love and live as Jesus taught, or is it to be drawn into how the culture of the day says you should serve uh, and love and live? to be drawn into the ideas of the culture that might be contrary to the gospel, that might say, actually, you don't need God. You can have it all here now and live how you want. Now, Paul is saying to married couples in particular, he's saying work as one as you serve Jesus in your household and the world around you. The idea of being subject to the husband, it's not meant to be an idea of inequality, but an idea of union, of being one flesh, working together as equals, under the loving responsibility, care, and leadership of the husband. It's as much a verse for husbands as it is for wives. This is not a verse for abusive, domineering leadership and bowing to every women will of a master. And this is not a verse that means you must stay in a situation where you are being harmed in any way, shape, or form. It's a verse that is meant to speak into the loving unity of two people who seek to serve God side by side to the best of their ability. So older women teach younger women what this looks like. Help them. Older men teach younger men what this looks like. Help them. I hope we can all see how much Paul is targeting not just individuals here. 
He's targeting, targeting us as people who actually need each other's help in these areas too, as we seek to serve Jesus side by side. Now, Paul only gives younger men one instruction, one instruction here. I was going to make a joke about multitasking, but I just have to concentrate right on this, guys. Um, now, we could take this verse as Paul just patting the younger men on the shoulder and saying, you guys don't really have that much to worry about. There's just this one, just, just be self-controlled. Like, come on, just keep getting on the way you're going. But in fact, the force of the word being used here, it's not uh, the kind of encouragement that's just an arm around the shoulder and a slap on the back. It's an encouragement of maybe picking someone up by the ear if they need to and throwing them in the right direction. There is an urging. In a culture where sex, drunkenness, wealth, power are all things that are celebrated and put forward as life's greatest pursuits, lack of self-control for young men is probably what is going to tear them away from Jesus as they buy the lie that these other things are better for them. This is what will be most destructive in their household. So Paul says to Titus, teach the younger men to be self-controlled. And Titus is to teach them himself through his own conduct as well. See, Paul is very aware of the problems that young men will face and of the damage that can be done if they're not taught to show self-control. It will damage a marriage. It will damage a relationship with children. It will damage a reputation at work. It will damage their body in some cases. It will wreak havoc on the bank balance that is meant to reflect and enable service and love of others. Titus is to teach self-control, not being pulled this way and that by the current of the culture around them. And, And the question for the young men here, although this is a question for all of us to think through, is what is the thing that you're going to struggle with the most in this area? The three big ones are sex, money, and power. Which of these three are you drawn to? In which of these areas do you struggle to show self-control? This is what young men are being pushed to think about because these areas will filter over into everything that we do, into how we show love to those around us, into how we persevere in trusting Jesus, into how we become those temperate, those sober-minded older men who are worthy of respect and who follow Jesus faithfully. So older men, teach us. Younger men, listen. Finally, Paul speaks to slaves. Now, there's a really obvious thing to say here, and it's that one person should not be able to own another person. Uh, Many Christians rightly have fought to abolish slavery in the world, continue to fight that fight against human trafficking and slavery. There's no question that it's wrong. Yet in this time we're reading about, there were many slaves in society. Actually, if all of us were to live back then, probably most of us would be slaves ourselves. And these people who were slaves in different households, well, they were also part of the Christian community. They were also leaders in the Christian community. So Paul instructs them in their conduct as those beloved children of God to live out what they say they believe in the context they find themselves in. And it's here that we see how important living against the pull of the culture around us is. Why are slaves to act in a godly way in the given context they're in, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive? Why were those younger women called to live that way in their given context, so that no one will malign the word of God? Why was Titus to set an example in his actions and through his speech in the way that he treated God's word so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us? See, in every sense, 
It's because those who belong to God become his representatives here on earth. We're wearing the school blazer that identifies us as belonging to Christ. And our actions will show people what we think about God. They will show people whether or not what we say we believe actually makes a difference. Our actions, if living in accordance with the gospel, will make it more appealing to the people around us as they see that the gospel, it's not just something we say we believe, but it's something that truly has changed our lives as they're pointed to look at who Jesus is and the grace of God that has been revealed in him. When I was out there in the ocean, battling against the current that was dragging me every which way and back towards the rocks, I really needed to be shown a way out. I was actually really terrified. And the the frustratingly relaxed-looking surfer who saw me struggling along, they were very helpful. They pointed out to me the current I was in and how to get out of it as well. At work, when those Friday night drinks roll around and you say, no thanks, to another round, you're not actually being weak and you're not stopping an opportunity to witness to Jesus by standing out a little bit and maybe making the person who's offering to you feel a bit uncomfortable. You're showing self-control and you're providing the opportunity for another surfer being dragged toward the rocks to come up to you and say, what's the deal? You're not in the same current as me. And then you can turn and point behind them at the rocks and say, yeah, because the current you're in is leading that way, but I know the one who can save you. The difference that this truth has obviously had on your life, Paul writes, adorns the gospel, makes it all the more beautiful as people see the difference it has had on your life, that it's powerful, that it is life-changing, as they see the grace of God as has been revealed in his son Jesus. Now, this is why being reminded of the grace of God over and over again, it's so important. And we need to do this side by side as we live in response to this grace. As those who've been transformed into a new people, not saved because of godliness, but seeking to be godly in response to God's grace. Because there's absolutely nothing that we can bring to the table. So point three then, living out what we know together, just briefly. So as a church, what will it look like for us to live this way and how will we do this? Because what I think we're reading from Paul is to live this out together, side by side, not to just kind of ponder and think about it a little bit, actually do it together. So firstly, from older to younger men and older to younger women. For those older men and women, who here that is younger than you, could you just ask to catch up with every once in a while? Who here who was younger, could you catch up with to ask them about how they're going with self-control, with temptation with being a faithful worker with being a faithful friend or a husband or wife that you're not being instructed by paul to have all the answers and to be perfect and if that's your approach to it you you probably shouldn't be in that position but you're being instructed to help teach those younger than you about what it looks like to love jesus and to follow him when they're that little bit older because you've likely been in their shoes and can help teach them and warn them And it might look like just grabbing dinner or coffee or beer every now and again to to ask these more pointed questions. It might look like inviting them over to, to share in some family or household life together. But older men and women, who here that is younger than you, could you ask to catch up with every once in a while? If you're looking back on your life, maybe the last week, the last couple of months or year, 
if you're looking back and you can see that there are still actually some, some serious struggles and areas in your own life with sin, maybe this isn't the point that you're up to at the moment, but remember the grace of God. Ask him for forgiveness, knowing that he gives it. And ask him for help to change your heart toward whatever sin it is. But also ask one of your peers to be that person who you can catch up with, to ask you those questions, to pray with you about those things, and to point you to Jesus. Uh, Younger men and women, who here who is younger than you, who you can invest in? You're also just a step above someone else in age and stage of life. So what does it look like for you to love and point that person toward Jesus? It might be as simple as saying g'day on a Sunday morning and asking how they're going. Or for the parents here, finding someone who you trust to invest in that relationship in a more pointed way. But also younger men and women, who are you going to look up to and seek out for this kind of relationship for yourself? Look for the person who you think will help you know Jesus better and who can share from their life experience about how their own relationship with Jesus has changed them. Now for everyone, this probably looks like going up to someone and getting to know them to start with. So who this morning don't you know who you can just introduce yourself? I'm not saying like hunt down the first person you see and say, will you be my tightest two friends? Not kind of saying that, but just go and introduce yourself to someone and just say good day and have a coffee. Then do it next week. Get out of your usual group huddle that you're in and meet someone new. It kind of feels a little bit like Jack's dating service right now. I get that. Just just go up and just say hey to someone. Not at all what's going on, although next week we're having a Titus 2 themed barn dance. It's going to be a lot of fun, so make sure you get along to that. Saying just, just spend time though, just actively seeking out loving each other by pointing each other to Christ in our words and in our deeds. Learn from one another what pitfalls have been uh, there for you and that others should watch out for. It will involve a vulnerability that might be pretty uncomfortable, but it's a vulnerability that will shed all the more light on the grace of God as you yourself are reminded that it's not your godliness that has made you right with God, it's Jesus. It's by grace you're saved through faith. And what a great truth to be able to share in together side by side as we seek to serve our great loving God. We're going to sing a song now that I think is really helpful for us as we close. See, we're reminded at the end of Titus chapter 2 that one day Jesus will return. And we're being called by Paul not to wait until Jesus returns before we start living for him. We're called to live as those who've been saved by the grace of God to live as those who know there's no other way to live but in relationship with our loving God who saved us, a loving God with whom we belong, a loving God who is with us even now, teaching us how to live by his grace alone. The band's going to come up now, and as they're coming up, I'm going to close in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for the love that you have shown us through your Son, Jesus. Thank you for your grace through which we're saved by faith, Lord. And thank you for your grace, which also teaches us what it looks like to live before you as your people. We pray that you'd help us to do this side by side, lifting one another up, pointing one another towards who you are as our God and our Saviour. Amen.